And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Luke chapter 2, 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made no, known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in their heart. And shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. If you would uh, remain, I am going to extend the reading of God's word just a few more verses in chapter 2. This is picked up now in 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law, uh, in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, may you give us wisdom and faith to learn from your word. Thank you for the dramatic reading of your word in chapter two by our children, the children, these covenant children. And I pray, Lord, that we would believe as they believe, simply and wholeheartedly. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name's Ronnie, I'm one of the pastors here. 
Uh, during Advent, we'd been studying the names of the Messiah that are given to him in Isaiah 9. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And today, this morning, we're studying that moment when that, ch- pro- that child that was prophesied is born. And, and we saw that dramatically read for us. So let me set this up. Um, after I graduated from that uh, amazing small engineering school down south of us, the Air Force Academy, beat JMU, but I digress already. Um, before, after I graduated, but before I had to um, t- go to my first duty station, uh, I was able to travel a little bit. I went to Mexico City to live with some missionaries for a few months And while I was there, they really wanted me to visit and see all the main artifacts of this like massive city. And so I was told that I absolutely had to go see the uh, Teotihuacan pyramids. Uh, I'm not sure if you know what those are. There's actually two of them. There's a sun pyramid and there's a moon pyramid. And these structures are really impressive. They're constructed about 200 years before the birth of Christ. And uh, now I didn't do this on purpose, but it turns out that the day I was visiting them, it was the summer solstice. And so it drew a very big crowd of people who were there that were super into astrology or whatever. So hundreds of people were there waiting for this precise moment when the Earth's orbit around the sun was such that the North Pole is like closest to the sun, making it the longest day of the year, whatever it is. And um, all these people were like calculating it to the minute. And when the moment came, there were all these very different reactions. Like some people grew very quiet when it happened. Others were a bit um, apprehensive and scared. Some people were laughing and hooting and hollering. And there were even a few who were just moved to tears. And it it felt spiritual for people who were there who believed that these moments, these moments where what was happening in the celestial bodies out there affected life here on earth. Now, I hadn't really thought about that moment until I read this passage again, the story of the birth of Jesus that Luke is telling us, he too presents us with very different reactions. Like similarly, things were happening in the sky that led everyone to believe that life on earth had been changed forever. And so there were these different reactions, aren't there? In the text, you have Mary and you have Joseph, you have these shepherds. And I'm wondering if this morning we all can't find our place in the story because the different reactions were the response of what it meant for each person that the eternal and immeasurable God who exists outside of the universe and yet created the universe would become one of us. What does that mean What does it mean that God would identify with us so nearly? One of the greatest TV romances in my estimation comes from the show The Office. You know Jim and Pam? And these two, if you know the show, they had chemistry for several seasons, and, but it always seemed like their love would never work out. And yet, you know, if you're watching it, they just seem so perfect together. 
But in season six, they finally are getting married. And so that one episode kind of follows the whole day, and it's not too unlike other wedding days, but it's a comedy, right? And so all kinds of things uh, that could go wrong are going wrong, of course. But Pam, the bride, has seemed to survive all the shenanigans, and she has gotten to the moment right before the wedding ceremony, and her veil, the wedding veil is a mess. It was ripped. Something had happened, and she is feeling a little bit embarrassed. She's feeling humiliated. So Jim, the groom, he walks in. He sees that it's a mess, and they start talking about it. And Pam says this. She goes, this veil was supposed to be the one thing that I could control, and I messed it up. And so Jim takes a pair of scissors, and he cuts his tie in half. And he goes, there, now we are even. Now, now Jim looks silly, but now he is matching his bride, Pam. He's like identifying with her in her humiliation. And in a symbolic way, he is binding himself to her. Now, listen, The Office, it's a comedy. It's a comedy of comedies. But in that moment, if you had been following this couple for six seasons, you are in tears. Because that gesture is so precious. Why? Because that small gesture is an echo or a glimpse of the reality that is written into the fabric of the universe. That is what the Christmas story rehearses for us. A groom binding himself to his bride in her, humi- in her humiliation. That the God of this universe loves his bride so much that he came to identify with us, to be humiliated for us and with us. Now that word humiliation is a very theological word. And that great confession that we read here often, the Westminster, it speaks to this precise idea. It asks the question, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer is, the humiliation of Christ consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life. The Christmas story is a story of God humbling himself so that he could identify with us and rescue us. God must never be understood as this sort of transcendent deity in outer space. Christmas tells us that God came near. So what I want to do is just spend the rest of our time this morning just thinking about what Luke wanted us to know when he wrote chapter 2, which was so preciously recited by our children today. So I just have two points as we think about God in the manger. And so kids, I want you to listen for this so you can tell your parents what you learned today. Two points. Point one, God gets us. And then our second point, which is totally different than the first point, is God gets us. So God gets us and God gets us. So you listen to see what I mean by that. First, God gets us. Now, when you read chapter two carefully, you realize 
he sets it up beautifully, contrasting the powerful and the weak. So verse one begins with this mad tyrant, Caesar Augustus. He snaps the world into action, ordering a census, which requires people to go to the city of their registration. Strangely though, the drama of the story would not take place in the palaces of power, but in the animal stalls of the poor. The action focuses on a couple of scared kids who have to make a trip to Bethlehem at the worst possible time because Mary is nine months pregnant and you simply don't want to travel when you're that pregnant. But the emperor needs his taxes, so off they go. And when they arrive, they realize that the inn is full with other people who had to travel to Bethlehem to be registered And so they make do beside the animals. And when the time comes, it's Joseph, not the hands of a midwife, but in the rough and shaky hands of a carpenter, he receives the Christ child. And then Mary wraps this baby boy up like you do babies. And he laid him down in a feeding trough. And sometimes we use that word manger, But honestly, that is far too elegant of a word. It was a feeding trough. A peasant baby was born to peasant parents in the most humble of circumstances. And this was good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And it's really important that you hear that it was for all people, like all kinds of people. This is really good news. As the shepherds checked in for the night shift, there is no way they could have known what was about to happen when the multitude of angels that began to hover over the heads of the shepherds, when they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, they knew something Strange was happening. So these guys run across those dark fields like they're being chased. They wanted to see this thing that was happening. And when they get there, it's just like the angel told them. They would find Mary and they would find Joseph and they would find the baby asleep in the strangest bed they had ever seen. And yet somehow, mysteriously, counterintuitively, When they see him in that bed, it makes sense to them that the king of the world would choose that bed. And they can't be silent about this, so they go off and tell everyone what they have seen. Not just about the baby in the manger, they tell everyone about what they have been told concerning the child, that he is a savior. Now that is where the savior is would choose to spend the very first hours of his life, a barn, teenage parents, and the weirdest audience of frightened yet excited shepherds. Now, shepherds who are like the pariahs, the outsiders of their culture. And somehow the shepherds did, uh, they didn't need any convincing that what they were looking at was absolutely true. They were caught up in a story that felt more real to them than any story that they'd ever been a part of. 
And they were just glad that God remembered them. They were just glad that God thought of them. God gets them. Now, now just think about this with me for just a second. Whenever you and I have options, we always choose the nicer or better options, don't we? The the Son of God could have been born in any condition he wanted, to any kind of community, to any kind of family, but he chose to be born poor. Like, just imagine, like, you lived in a house with a leaky roof, no insulation, no heat. You don't have a car, and all you can afford is to eat beans and rice. But through a series of very fortunate events, you get a great job, terrific salary, and even benefits. Now, listen closely. None of us would choose to stay in that house and eat that food We would call a realtor, we'd call a dealership, and we would improve our circumstances because we can. Jesus had infinite options before him, but he chose swaddling cloths. He chose a feeding trough. And guess what? Jesus stayed poor. He opted for a humble estate At one point in his ministry, he would say, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He chose to be poor, to be born that way and to stay that way. Now you and I almost never opt to humble ourselves, but you know, sometimes we do choose or we don't choose, but it chooses us, humiliation, Humiliation is very much a part of human experience. And I think that's why Jesus chose the path of humbling and the path of humiliation. Like Jesus made absolutely no mistakes, and yet the, cho- the path he chose in the end finishes with humiliation. His family called him crazy. His hometown rejected him. And at the end of his life, he is mocked, hanging naked like a fake king with a fake crown. Why did the Christ, why did the Christ child do that? Why did he choose when he had all of the options available to him? Why did he choose the path of humiliation? He did it so that you would know that he identifies with us. He gets us. Jesus came to us this way. And we must never forget it. And I know there's no way to kind of register this this mysterious paradox in our minds. I mean, we tend to just read the story and just think it it just happened that way. But you must, but you must see more. The indescribable hiddenness and the breathtaking glory of God. The God who created all things exists in time, in space, with people just like us. He became flesh and lived with us. And so if you are ever tempted to think that God doesn't really know you, if you're ever tempted to think that he doesn't know the stuff that you're dealing with, the misery, the things that your mind can't let go of, the things that are hard to face, the humiliation 
the embarrassment, then let this image of a little baby nursed by an exhausted and overwhelmed mom kindly wrapped up so that he can sleep in a feed box, let that image make you think again. He absolutely knows you, and that is the absolute truth. He came, he became like us in every way, and he did it for us. He did it for our good. And so you must know and you must be convinced of this. Christ tells us that he gets us. He gets us. So let me switch gears now very quickly. So our first point is he gets us. He understands us. But let's think about our second point. He gets us. So let's recall one more time that confessional theological response about the humiliation of Christ. So the theologians, they tell us that the humiliation of Christ consisted in his being born, that in a low condition, poor, undergoing the miseries of this life. Now we talked about that in our first point, but there is this phrase, that part that the humiliation of Christ consisted in him being made under the law. Now, To be under the law means to be liable to those laws and its consequences. This can be a little bit hard to understand, so maybe the best way to think about this is in the opposite. What does it mean to be above the law? To be above the law means that whether you obey or not, the consequences of the law do not apply to you. So in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will revisit this idea to make sure we know that Jesus was born under the law. Now, this is like really strange. I'm going to help you understand how strange this is. Think about this with me for just a second. Moses, who gets the law, he's commanded to go to Mount Sinai, right? Remember this? No one's allowed to go up to the mountain. No one's allowed to even touch it because they would be immediately killed. Sinai is filled and surrounded by smoke and peals of thunder and lightning. And when Moses goes up that mountain, he receives a couple of tablets that included the law. Who gave Moses the law? It was God. God did. But it's a person. Think of it as like a pre-incarnate Jesus handing it to him. Now, if anyone should be above the law, it would be Jesus. I mean, he made it. And yet, in Luke 2, he is born under it. Why? Like, what's that about? Well, it's so that we would all know with certainty that on the final day, he gets us. So let's just think about Luke 2 one more time very quickly. So the action from Luke 2 would move from Bethlehem to the house of a local rabbi where he would be circumcised on the eighth day, which was a requirement of the law. Jesus is under the law. Then the action moves to Jerusalem. When Mary and Joseph brought the Christ child to Jerusalem 40 days later, which was also a requirement of the law. He had to be presented to the priests to fulfill the law of Moses, which says this, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, because Jesus is the firstborn male, Mary must offer a sacrifice. 
Now, you and I are just reading these verses in Luke chapter 2, but it actually is a direct quote from Leviticus chapter 12. In in chapter 12 of Leviticus, you get a little bit more context. The law, as it's described in 12, stipulates that, that women must bring a perfect, spotless lamb as a sacrifice. However, if she can't afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be considered clean. Now remember what we said. Jesus is poor, born to poor peasant parents. Mary can't afford a lamb, and so she brings two birds. This becomes mind-boggling when you think that it was God himself giving Jesus all of these extra stipulations, right? Go back to Sinai. Imagine the pre-incarnate Jesus talking with Moses. He's like, hey, Mo, write this down. For this kind of event, you have to do this. For this kind of disease, you have to do this kind of sacrifice. For a woman who gives birth, she has to wait 40 days, and she needs to sacrifice a lamb. Moses is like, okay, woman gives birth, sacrifices a lamb, got it. Right? And like lambs, right? The lambs are highly symbolic in the Bible. They're, they're innocent and cute and white and pure. And yet they're always being killed for the sins of other people. They're always being sacrificed for the faults of other people. So if a woman gives birth to a firstborn boy, she must bring an innocent, pure, spotless lamb as a sacrifice. So Moses is like, check. But Jesus, knowing who his mother would be, knowing the condition that he would be born into, like the reality of his future mother, he says, oh, wait, Moses, one more thing. If the woman can't afford a lamb, two birds will work. Like this is all so strange, isn't it? Like the pre-incarnate Jesus giving the law and then being born later under that same law. And all of these laws have consequences to those who break them. Again, the the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Romans, he would give us a great quick summary of uh, of, of the consequences for those who break the law. He says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the consequences of breaking the law is death. So Jesus establishes the rules and he chooses to be born under those rules, which means if he breaks them, he will have to pay the penalty associated with them. Now Mary knows what she's supposed to do. She's supposed to go to the temple, bring a lamb, and then the priest is gonna say to her, Mary, you're like everyone else. You're a sinner, you're unclean. But this lamb will be received as an offering, and this lamb will die instead of you. But here's the thing, and you can't miss this because this is so present in the Christmas story. Mary is too poor, so she couldn't bring a sacrificial lamb. And yet, she did. This poor peasant teenager did indeed bring the spotless sacrificial lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
But it was not Jesus' time, and so the two birds would have to stand in for Mary and really for the whole world. But the next 30 years would be Jesus proving that he is indeed perfect and obedient and spotless. And he perfectly lived under the law. His humiliation consisted in the law creator living under the law. Why? So that you would know with all certainty that God gets you because of the sacrifice of Jesus the Lamb. God gets us. He receives us as clean. The child lived a life of perfect obedience under the law, the one that we should have lived, and he dies for us as our spotless sacrifice so that God would receive us. God gets us because of Jesus. And that's where I want to leave us this Christmas Eve. Jesus was born poor. He chose a humble estate. He chose humiliation. He suffered in this life just like you did and have. God understands all the difficulties of this life, your sadness, your unfulfilled dreams, your loss, your diseased body, your loneliness, Like he really gets you. And Jesus was born under the law. And he let the wages of your sin fall on him. He was born to die so that you could live. However good we think we are, we're bad enough that the perfect lamb of God had to die in our place. And Jesus was glad to do it because he loves you. Because he loves you so, so much. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, he gets you. He will really, really receive you if you trust in him. The birth of Jesus means everything. That's why Christmas is so special. So, I'll end as I've begun. Where do you find yourself in the story? Do you become really quiet? Maybe a little bit scared and pensive? Or is there such a great joy that there's hooting and hollering? Or maybe, like me, you're moved to tears. In all cases, ponder this. Don't waste this Christmas. It's not about the gifts. Ponder this profoundly in your hearts. And hopefully, your response will be something closer to just unhinged joy You know why? Because the Lord gets you, and the Lord gets you. Amen? And may this be the merriest of all Christmases.